I'm ASPS University Dean, Dr. Nicholas Haddock, and on today's episode of Plastic Surgery Hot Seat, we will be talking about secondary options for autologous reconstruction when the abdomen isn't available. We all know that about 80% of reconstructions are implant-based, with the remaining 20% being autologous-based. But with the number of recent concerns and yet again some bad press, many patients are leaning away from implants and seeking alternatives. Statistically, just over 70% of the time the abdomen is used, and pretty much anyone that's comfortable with microsurgery would agree that the abdomen is the first choice, and the gold standard in this area is, of course, the deep flap. But there are many situations where the abdomen is not available, or potentially microsurgery is not ideal. In our practice, we typically see this in thin patients, or those that have had previous abdominal surgery, such as abdominoplasty, or previous abdominally-based reconstruction that has failed. There are varying algorithms with, like many things in plastic surgery, no single right answer, but all approaches involve a selection from the alphabet soup of flaps available. People will debate on what is best, but ultimately this is based on each individual surgeon's experience. I would personally argue that in modern times, we should be approaching this in a patient-centric approach with shared decision-making based on the individual's body. In this approach, the location is truly tailored to the individual. The typical alternative locations are the thighs, including the pap flap, LTP flap, or variant of the gracilis flap, the buttock with one of the gluteal artery perforator flaps, or the back as a latissimus flap, or more recently, the lumbar artery perforator flap. Today, we present a discussion led by Dr. Richard Benosa between Dr. David Greenspan and Dr. David Song, focused on some of their typical secondary options. It is a great discussion as they both approach breast reconstruction with similar goals, but choose to solve the problem in completely different ways. Both of them think about the donor site and the ultimate result from a functional and body contouring standpoint. Dr. Greenspun will present one of the newer microsurgical approaches utilizing the lumbar artery perforator flap. I have had multiple opportunities to sit on panels and have had discussions with Dr. Greenspun, and he will really offer great insight into what is a fairly challenging operation. Dr. Song is obviously an expert microsurgeon with a vast experience, but today he will present a non-microsurgical approach using a latissimus flap with immediate fat grafting. So with that, I turn it over to Dr. Benosa. Hello, listeners. I'm your moderator, Dr. Richard Benosa, professor and chair of the Department of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery at UNLV and breast section editor for ASPS EdNet. On today's episode of ASPS EdNet Hot Seat, we will be looking at secondary options for autologous breast reconstruction when abdominal tissue and the deep flap are not available. We are lucky to be joined by two distinguished guests who will be each talking about a secondary autologous breast reconstruction option that they have a significant clinical experience in, having either published on the topic or having given invited presentations about this option. Dr. David Greenspun will be talking to us about his experience with a lumbar artery perforator flap while Dr. David Song will be discussing the clinical data behind his use of the latissimus flap with immediate fat transfer or lift procedure. I'll turn over the mic to each of them and let them introduce themselves. And we'll start first with Dr. David Song. Good morning. Thank you, Dr. Benosa. My name is David Song. I'm the physician executive director for surgical services at MedStar Health, professor and chair of the Department of Surgery and the Department of Plastic Surgery. I've uh, been a microsurgeon for, hate to say it, but about a quarter century. Seems like a long time. And I've uh, been doing uh, a lot of autologous uh, microsurgical reconstruction. Ironically, I'll be talking about something that's not microsurgical today. All right, perfect. Thank you. And Dr. Greenspun? 
Hi, thanks, uh, Dr. Beynosa. Uh, it's an honor to be here. I'm in private practice in Greenwich, Connecticut. The focus of my practice, like Dr. Song, is on autologous reconstruction. I perform actually all types of breast reconstruction, including implants and, and some pedicle flaps. And today I'm going to talk about the lumbar artery perforator flap as uh, one of the choices for non-abdominally based breast reconstruction with natural tissue. Thanks, Dr. Greenspun, and it's a pleasure to have uh, both of you here. I think, uh, as you almost mentioned, it's uh, actually somewhat ironic that we have the private practice guy talking about the micro flap, and we have the academic guy talking about the non-micro flap, but um, I, I think that'll be already a good segue into a, an interesting discussion. So question for both of you, what are the primary reasons that each of you feel that this flap, either the lumbar artery perforator flap versus the lift technique? should be considered as a preferred option for autologous reconstruction if abdominal tissue isn't available. And can you please just briefly describe for our listeners that maybe don't know or are not familiar with each of these types of flaps, a little bit about your specific flap, and we'll start with Dr. Greenspun. Okay, so probably like most people, the abdomen is my first choice for reconstruction when it's uh, available, meaning that there's adequate soft tissue there to reconstruct one or both breasts, depending on a patient's need. When the abdomen isn't a choice, then obviously you got other places to go, upper back, lower back, thighs, buttock. Um, and for me, pretty high up in, in my algorithm of secondary choices is the lower back and the lumbar area. And so the lumbar artery perforator flaps are essentially a, a, a mechanism of repurposing the love handles, moving that tissue from the lower back and the uh, sort of posterior lateral thigh to the chest. And the reason that I like that the lumbar donor site so much is because the donor site kind of fits in with the principles of aesthetic body contouring surgery. And in my practice, I kind of have this algorithmic approach that, that looks not just at what we're going to do at the breast, but what we're going to do at the donor site. And the lumbar site is kind of the equivalent of harvesting tissue for a posterior body lift. And so when you take that tissue and remove it just above the buttock around the waistline, what you're effectively doing is, is narrowing the waistline and lifting the buttock. And so from the patient's standpoint, that's a pretty favorable change. And on top of it, the tissue that we're able to procure from that area produces uh, typically a pretty perky breast. The tissue, the lobular configuration of the fat in that area is such that kind of like a, a gluteal flap tends to um, be more robust and, and have a a better turgor in terms of, of projection. So that's why I like that site so much. I mean, I'll add to that, of course, the fact that the scar for the donor site's on the back, which is, which is nice because it's hidden from a patient's view when they look in the mirror. I mean, it's obviously still, still present on the body, but uh, it's not something that they see immediately every time they look in a mirror. So oh, thanks for that, Dr. Greenspun. So very similar to I guess a deep flap, the, the patients that are undergoing lumbar artery perforator flaps seem to be getting almost a twofer where you're actually improving their body contour as well as giving them an autologous breast reconstruction similar to deep flaps. Now, Dr. Song, you have a different take on using autologous tissue from the back. Can you describe a little bit about your technique and why you feel it is a, a good technique as a secondary option for autologous reconstruction? 
Yeah, thank you. Uh, much like Dr. Greenspun, I mean, the uh, abdomen is the gold standard, whether it's a, a stack deep flap for a unilateral. Uh, I mean, it, it really is a primary O2 for me. In situations where we're moving away from the abdomen, and let me just say something before I do that. Yeah, even if there are scars, I usually don't get CT angios. I mean, there's always a perforator that you can find. So I feel very comfortable going to the abdomen. Uh, but there are situations where obviously you can't. And those are typically situations that are non-microsurgical for me in my practice. Someone has a hypercoagulable state, someone has had multiple failed free flaps. I usually, my practice is probably 50% of folks that have had uh, issues elsewhere and they've referred to me about plastic surgeons. So, you know, some of those microsurgical options have already been used. And so the latissimus is, is a way to go. And many nowadays, because of this whole implant scare and BIALCL, really want to shift away from implants. So I thought of a, a way to figure out how to provide full autologous reconstruction without uh, microsurgical hurdles that were probably there for the reason why they fail in the first place. So going to the back is just a, a great source of huge autologous tissue, but you don't get the volume. So instead of an implant, you know, we're in the era of fat grafting. It's combining two techniques that virtually every plastic surgeon does on a day-to-day -day basis. And I've just taken to an extreme Uber level where the latissimus is such a hardy flap. You know, we used to joke in residency and with my residents that you have to try to kill a latissimus flap, right? So it's a, it's a workhorse and everyone knows how to do it. You denervate it so you don't have animation deformity and everyone knows how to do fat grafting. And so, you know, we've, you, we've even injected upwards of 800 cc's of fat to, to get full autologous volume, knowing that, you know, 20, 30, 40% of it will resorb. And over the course of time, that gets really soft. And we saw a patient yesterday where a similar situation where they lost a deep flap for whatever reason, workup was a hypercoagulable state. So instead of doing another microsurgical reconstruction with anticoagulation, we did a latissimus with immediate fat transfer. Patient went home that same day. And, you know, my residents and fellows can't tell the difference unless they look at the donor site. And so that's been a, a huge bonus for us. The final thing I'll say about the lift procedure, latissimus immediate fat transfer, is that it's open to the masses, right? You don't have to be an expert microsurgeon like David Greenspun to do this. It's something that we've learned. And now as we move into an era where implant-based reconstruction is losing a little bit of favor, this is an option that every plastic surgeon can do in every hospital across the country. And I think that's a, an appealing process. The final thing I'll say about this is we did a patient-reported outcome measure study. We presented this at ASPS a couple of years ago, showing the equivalency of satisfaction. It was slightly higher, actually, with the latissimus immediate fat transfer, but it wasn't significant. And showing that that compared to a deep flap was absolutely equivalent with the benefits of outpatient or 23-hour stay, no anticoagulation, and patients getting a full body contour result, as uh, Dr. Greenspun noted, given that, that you know, many people get uh, full body liposuction for that additional volume. So for all those reasons, it has not, not just become a secondary option. Many patients who actually shy away from the big scar on the abdomen will, uh, when we offer it to them, choose the latissimus immediate fat transfer technique over the abdomen um, because of the ability to, to hide the scar and, and not necessarily see it regularly. So all those reasons have allowed us to change this from a great secondary option to now a primary choice for patients that choose to go that way. 
Thanks, Dr. Song. That's that's amazing that you're really taking this. And it's not really a new technique. I think you've just kind of pushed it to the envelope, as you said, and really gone uber with it. And we can go over uh, a little bit about your technique and some of the things that you do different from other published reports to be able to achieve those outcomes. But some of the things that you mentioned were that there's specific patient populations that kind of lend themselves to this option, some relative contraindications for the deep flap that lead you to this, as well as some scenarios where this becomes your primary option. So for Dr. Greenspun, I'll try to find out from you, do you have similar contraindications, some patients that are better for this flap than others? And is this ever your primary option uh, in comparison to the deep flap? So I guess there are a couple of questions wrapped into that. In terms of contraindications, I think some are indications. You know, for one thing, the skin island that you can get from the lower back and the behavior of the skin island in relationship to the fat is such that you can't really sculpt a lumbar flap once it's up at the chest. The, the flap is sculpted as you elevate it. And what's really nice is that you, you can kind of almost sculpt a unit of tissue that resembles the shape of the uh, previous generation of implants that, that were shaped implants. But what you can't do is drape that skin up at the chest and use it to significantly restore the skin envelope. So for patients that need skin restoration, like a radiated delayed reconstruction, for most of those patients, the lumbar flap isn't going to be a good option because you're not going to get a large enough skin island or not going to get the skin island in the location that you need it. So that's sort of an indication and contraindication wrapped together. I wouldn't offer a lumbar flap to any patient that had hardware around the back and issues potentially with chronic back pain and things like that, where we might get into either exacerbating an issue or creating some other related issue during the harvest. And then I think a, a sort of somewhat relatively new contraindication for me is hypercoagulable state. And so we do a lot of free flaps on patients that do have known hypercoagulable states things like factor five, Leiden, protein C, protein S. But one of the things about the lumbar flap is, is that my experience as well as that of the other groups that are doing any of these in significant numbers is that the failure rate is somewhere between five and 10%. I think the group in Belgium published, uh, I think 9% fail, failure rate. I've heard Nick Haddock speak, he and Dr. Teosha, they're doing more, so their rate may come down. So I don't want to speak for them, but, but at the time that I heard him present, six, eight months ago, sort of north of 5%, were about 6%. And so I think that that speaks to the complexity of the, of the flaps. And I lost a flap in a patient with a known hypercoagulable state. And I think for these flaps, I use interposition arterial and venous grafts. The artery is typically, uh, you know, one millimeter or often less around 0.8 millimeters. And so I think a hypercoagulable state is really a relative indication contraindication, excuse me, for this. And so that's kind of my, you know, relative contraindications. I think obviously people have to have enough tissue in the right place to do this. And that means that we can harvest the tissue and not create a secondary deformity at the donor site. And in terms to, to get to your question about would I do this as a, a primary breast reconstruction over the abdomen? I think Rarely have I seen patients who really have total equivalency of the donor sites and would want to do the lumbar site over the abdomen. I think if at least the, the patients that I see, 
if a, a patient has enough tissue on her abdomen to reconstruct one or both breasts, it's rare that she would want to go to the lumbar donor site uh, and use that preferentially, even if there is equivalent tissue there. So for me, I really tend to use the lumbar flap when there is not sufficient tissue at the abdomen, or there's really going to be a significant difference in terms of like the quality of the aesthetics of, of the reconstruction and the donor site. So sometimes somebody might quote unquote have enough, but I think the, whether or not somebody has enough is really, we all talk in those terms, I think, but but it's kind of an oversimplification of what's needed to restore breast that really looks attractive and, and that a patient likes. And so sometimes the abdomen might have enough, but it's not enough to, to make a really nice breast. And in that case, I would consider the lumbar and have used that occasionally. But um, no, it's not really a first line choice to me. The difference in the failure rate is so significant between the lumbar flap and the deep flap for us that it's really hard to justify that to patients. That sounds good. And, and it sounds like for both of you, it, it's really based on um, what's available first off and then um, patient characteristics, the clinical exam, and then what the patient desires. But so there was something that I saw that was pretty unique to both of you guys in your specific techniques. I know, David, in your talks and in our discussions previously, you'll typically do one flap at a time and stage these out for a bilateral reconstruction. And Dr. Song, I know also in your paper, the series of 18 that you did, they were all unilateral. So question for both of you is, would you consider doing um, these bilaterally? Why or why not? And um, I guess we'll start with Dr. Song this time. Yeah, I know we've done it and I didn't want to include it in the paper. We have a huge database now. I think we've done close to 300 now. We will have a, a, a follow-up paper coming up soon. But, you know, 20% of those patients were bilateral. And the one situation where I would probably steer away from it, the latissimus immediate fat transfer, and then go to something like the thigh or even the lumbar artery perforator flap would be in a situation where there's an athlete and there's a competitive athlete, because let's face it. I mean, you don't lose range of motion, but you do lose strength. And even if you can rehab it, I think someone that's a athlete, I, I would shift gears a bit, maybe think about thigh, or I've done what's called a, a latissimus sparing. So I take half the latissimus because you really need a, a lattice for it to hold the fat. And that's really the technique here. And so but yeah, we've done it in bilaterals. Uh, it's painful because you have to flip the patient twice. It's painful because it's just a lot of fat grafting. And maybe that's from my perspective as a microsurgeon, but folks that like fat grafting, they'll love this operation. But for the patient, it's great because they literally can go home the next day or that day because there's not a lot of pain involved in this in the back, as you all know, when you do latis, you take a fair amount of skin as well. And a lot of these patients, you can utilize their back roll. So the other technique, everything that we do, we want to maximize the donor site in an aesthetic fashion. And this is a perfect way to get rid of those back rolls that patients have that, that are, are, are nuisances for clothing. So for those reasons, it's worked out really nicely. And recently, we've done it on high-end athletes where we're saving half or even a third of the latis because we have no other options because they don't have you know, love handles, they don't have thighs, but they and have, have a small smaller breast to reconstruct. And then what we'll do is find the descending branch of the, of the thoracodorsal nerve and do a direct neurotonization or try to at least spare the nerve to the rest of the latissimus. And, and those patients have regained strength. These are anecdotes, but I did this on two competitive rock climbers 
which clearly the Latis is going to be important. And they were able to be able to do that. It took six months of rehab, but the ultimate strength level is when you can do a one-handed pull-up. I don't know if anyone on this call can do it, but I can't clearly. And both of these patients were able to get back to that. So it's a testament to probably not the latissimus, but more to the kind of people that they are. But I say that, and I use those anecdotes just to illustrate that it's really not a strength. I mean, the strength you can rehab. I actually talked to a patient about this operation yesterday, meaning the lift operation. Um, it's a patient who came to see me previously. He has had breast conserving therapy and radiation on one side. And now needs a mastectomy on that breast. And during her workup of breast cancer, it turns out that she was found to have cirrhosis and she's got portal hypertension and some shunting. But she's now in from a hepatic state. Her risk scores are actually totally acceptable for a mastectomy and I think would be acceptable to do something like a latest. I don't want to put an implant in. She doesn't want an implant because if she gets sicker down the road, you know, from liver disease or something, I kind of want an operation that would be done. And so um, obviously I don't want to, she came in actually asking for a deep flap, but obviously with shunting to the abdomen, that's, that's, you know, out of the question, but her reservation about this operation, meaning the lift operation has to do with the latissimus and she likes to swim. She's not a competitive swimmer, she's not a competitive athlete, but she likes to swim. She likes to do some other things. And when I talked to her, you know, she said, well, what about sacrificing this muscle. And I said, well, you know, the, the data is kind of mixed on this. And you look at stuff, uh, you know, that's been published over the last 15 years, and you could find probably as, as many patients and cases published that to support return of strength and, and, and so on, endurance and latis. And then you could find others that would specifically say the extended latis is probably the one that causes the most issues for patients once you get down the road. So I'm curious to know, you know, you've got a lot of experience with this. Do you, have you guys been doing any work on evaluating this? Because it would be really nice. I think, you know, as you pointed out, especially with, with what's going on in the breast implant world, it would be really nice to have some data to be able to say, look, this has actually now been studied in a, in a large group that had this specific operation. And here's what we see in terms of strength and endurance and function and discomfort and so on down the road. So, and then I'll get to, you probably have to re-ask me a question, Rich, because I don't remember, but. <laughs> no worries. Dr. Song, do you? Yeah, I can answer that. Um, yeah, thanks, yeah, Dave. Please. We, we have a prospective database now. Everyone fills out patient-reported outcome measures. So we look forward to publishing that data. I can share with you that the differences are not being felt at all in range of motion and strength and endurance you know, like many things, you can do a pure deep flap. And I've done an SIA flap and a patient can't get their abdominal strength back because they've been deconditioned and don't work on that for months or years. Like anything, I think it's highly, highly driven by the patient. And patients that are active swimmers that come to you and are concerned about that are usually the ones that don't have to be concerned because they're the ones that are active and already doing all the right things. It's the patients that, you know, are more sedentary, inactive, uh, in those patients, regardless of what you do, uh, you're going to have some deconditioning. And so I plug those patients in to what we call prehabilitation. So they see physical therapists before surgery, they get sort of a, a nice talking to, and then, and then we're really tough with them, getting them moving, getting them the physical therapy after surgery, moving them early, uh, getting them strength training. And so for all those things that, that we're doing on a proactive basis, I believe the data is going to show the differences are, are insignificant as far as strength and into a normal population. 
As you mentioned, Dr. Greenspan, many have already shown that, but I think that this will be a larger database following these patients out for years, showing that there's not going to be a deficit in strength. That'll be great. I'll just add on to that, Dr. Song, that, you know, I think it's important to really show that data because certainly we have a lot of literature to look at the quantitative numbers, um, pluses or minus, but we don't have a lot of subjective data in regards, in regards to clinical outcomes and what the patients actually can do in their uh, activities of daily living, as well as things that they need to do. I, I know I've had some patients that we've had to use latissimus flap either with or without implants on in patients that are Air Force at the uh, military base, Air, uh, Nels Air Force base, and they need to do their PT and things like that. So the only thing they really wanted to make sure they could do pull-ups, sit-ups, and all those things. And as you said, the ones that were physically fit and were able to do it before, they can make the, themselves do it again after. And, and a lot of the surrounding musculature will take over. And it's really when you have competitive rock climbers, you know, really high-level athletes at every single muscle fiber really makes a difference. Does that make a clinically significant difference? So it'll be interesting to see that data. But yeah, getting back to the previous discussion, Dr. Greenspun, the question originally was about the bilateral. And do you do bilaterals? Would you do bilaterals? Or uh, if not, why not? So for the lumbar, I've done one simultaneous bilateral. I presented this at the ASRM a number of years back. And it was personally sort of a miserable experience for me. And the patient did okay. It was a case I did before I started using interposition arterial and venous graft. So that may have colored, you know, my experience with just how technically difficult it was. The grafts make it a lot easier. So I know Dr. Haddock is, is doing some of these bilateral simultaneous, but I've been staging them and I'm, I'm considering again, the idea of doing them uh, as bilateral simultaneous. But the reason that I went to staging them, we, we worked out what I think is a really nice operative sequence, but it's definitely a downside to talk to patients that need a bilateral and tell them it's going to take two operations and then some revision surgery to really complete the process. It'd be nice to say, you know, we could usually do this in two operations. But the operative sequence that I've come to really like and the exposure that I like for the lumbar flap is one where we first get the patient ready in the supine position, meaning the recipient vessels are prepared. And if we're using the deep inferior upper gastric as a graft, you know, uh, talking about indications and donor site choices, obviously that's going to be as these patients are often in a scenario where the abdomen's either been used, you know, in one way or another, uh, or is not going to be adequate anyway. So the deep inferior epigastrics are good interposition grafts. The, the, the anastomosis to the chest ultimately is the same as doing a deep flap. And the size match of the artery works out really nicely with the artery on the lumbar. So that, that's our first choice graft. So we get that ready, but we don't harvest it. And then we temporarily close both incisions on the front side, turn the patient into the lateral decubitus ipsilateral to the site that we're reconstructing. And when we reprep in the lateral decubitus, we reprep the graft site so that it's accessible. So the graft isn't harvested until we get to the point that the flap is harvested. So the flap gets harvested, then the graft gets harvested. I do this with my partner, Dr. Heather Earhart. She'll go to the back table, connect the graft while I'm working on closing the, the donor site. We temporarily close the, the graft site and the time it takes to connect the graft to the flap on the back table is about the same amount of time it takes to close the lumbar donor site. And then we reposition the patient 
and then we do the microsurgery and, and close the graft site at the same time. I like the exposure in lateral decubitus. And so for me, a couple of things, again, going back to this idea that, that this flap has a particularly high failure rate. And, and now I'll talk a little like plastic surgery voodoo and, and you know, being, uh, you know, somewhat superstitious about things. Um, I don't know what sort of intimal changes would occur in a graft that, that is put on the back table and just sits there ischemic for a while. But to do this and not lose too much time, you either have to work on putting the graft to the flap while you're closing the donor site or have some other mechanism where, you know, maybe you're going to harvest the grafts from the thoracodorsal site, but then you're burning a potential future bridge. If you don't need to, you don't want to do that. So I'm a little bit concerned about the idea of leaving grafts ischemic for what could be a couple of hours um, and then hooking them up. And I don't know how that might impact thrombosis. And interestingly, while with the deep flap, most vascular problems tend to be venous, we've had some more arterial problems with the lumbar flap than venous problems. So all of that said, I mean, certainly as we've gotten more proficient with this, I'm, I'm interested in re-entertaining this idea. I know some people harvest the grafts and, and let them sit and that that's worked fine. But when an operation has a much higher failure rate than some of our other choices. I think we, my approach has been to be sort of super meticulous about trying to reduce potential risk everywhere. And, and I, I haven't found any data about the impact of ischemia on grafts, but sort of intuitively, we know, you know, the concept of reperfusion and thrombosis and ischemia, all these ideas kind of come together. And so um, I've shied away from it, but certainly we're now inclined to move back toward this, though I might do this in a way where we maybe bring two microscopes into the room so that we could still continue to maximize efficiency. Let's say expose both deep and ferropagastric grafts, then put the patient prone, harvest both flaps, turn them back, clip the grafts, then we can connect one on the back table, connect things at the same time if we have two microscopes in the room and, and then you know, work very efficiently. So it, it's under consideration, but for the moment, I've shied away from it, but other people are doing simultaneous. I think your points on efficiency are extremely well taken. And I think, you know, once you get a sequence of events that you have um, that becomes more and more routine and you have a way of doing things, it's very similar, I think, to bilateral deep flaps and doing them with two microsurgeons versus one microsurgeon. You know, I don't think I could ever go back to doing bilateral deep flaps just by myself. It's just you know, probably a non-starter at this point. But I think a lot of your techniques, including harvesting the deep inferior gastric arteries as vascular conduits, very efficient, I think, very much uh, saving time and, and allowing for a two-surgeon uh, approach. So I'm going to take that level of efficiency and also the little things and techniques and ask Dr. Song, can you really expound on some of your techniques? Because I know in your paper, you have changed some of the techniques in particular for the insight to fat graph that allows you to um, really have that increased amount of fat that the muscle can take. And so can you um, kind of uh, describe that a little bit? Yeah, thank you. So, you know, everyone knows how to harvest fat grafting. So that's being done during the time of the either the mastectomy or preparation of a delayed breast reconstruction. So while someone's harvesting the fat, 
will prepare the uh, breast cavity, will dissect out the thoracodorsal system and the nerve in a supine position. So while the fat is being processed, I use, and I have no disclosures to report about this, but I use the pure graft system. It's just super easy. So while that's churning and we're harvesting the fat, you know, the donor sites, are, the little pocket donor sites are closed for the port sites, and then we flip them laterally. And I make the skin incision depending on what we need. And, and this is one of the benefits of Latisse. As you know, you can take a pretty large skin paddle, not quite as much as a deep flat, but pretty close. And as I make the incision, I do everything with, except for divide the muscle, because I want that tension splayed out on the back to be able to inject the fat more easily. And that's worked really well. So in fact, after you're done injecting on the back, it actually looks like a breast on the back. A la the first breast reconstruction was done with a lipoma, right? So you're basically creating a lipoma of the back and I'm injecting into all layers, muscular layer into the fat under the skin paddle. And people were afraid about that. And I was too, but boy, as you know, the latissimus is very, very hardy. And so you can inject it to the point where you're like, oh my gosh. I, in fact, I had a situation where I injected it and we couldn't interpolate the flap into the breast. I couldn't push it. So we had to get surgigel and uh, lube and really it's almost like delivering a baby and pushing it in. And uh, there's only one situation where I've overgrafted where I had to go back in and suction it out. So, you know, it's fat grafting. So imagine you're you're doing that fat grafting. Yeah, you sort of get carried away, and you're like, "Whoa, oh my gosh!" Uh, and I remember my resident saying, "Dr. Shaw, I can't get this through." And so we opened the tunnel without destroying the lateral mammary fold, and then I truly couldn't get it through. And you just put a bunch of gel in, and just like you're 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 delivering a baby, and you can hear this pop in there, and very satisfying. And then you tack down the lateral fold so you don't have that bulge on the side. And I got to say, uh, it's no fun doing two hours of liposuction and preparing the fat and injecting the fat, but the outcomes for these patients can be very, very uh, astonishing compared to, you know, a deep flap. So for those reasons, by injecting the fat with the latissimus splayed out, that has been a huge boon for us. In, in, in the earlier stages, we do the flap, interpolate it into the breast and then try to inject the fat, but so, you know, jiggly, you don't get that nice tension and spread of the fat where you want it to. So instead now I'm doing it in situ before we raise the latissimus off the chest wall. And that has seemed to work really well. Are you doing any immediate fat grafting in your free flaps? Not yet. I guess for me, the free flap aspect of it, because I'm doing deeps and SIAs, you never want to just ding it or cause such turgor that it it pinches off the microcirculation as opposed to like a latissimus flap where, you know, it's, it's almost, uh, it's fun. I mean, you got the music going and it's not, there's very low stress and you can really beat up the latissimus and it survives and does really well. Yeah. I've noticed it makes a big difference keeping the latissimus still with its attachments to the spine. It's huge as opposed to the muscle going away for you. And, and I noticed also that when you make your tunnel, it seems just a lateral transposition as opposed to sometimes when you're doing a, a implant or tissue expander, you try to make it higher up in the axilla so you don't have that lateral malposition. But can you describe a little bit about that transposition, which is a little bit different from you know what, what we would normally do? That's exactly right. So you keep it low and the tunnel is lower. So you don't have to, uh, the obliteration of that high lateral mammary fold. So you can maintain that. And you sort of, if you position the skin paddle in that back roll, to be diagonal, it, it closes nicely and it transfers really nicely over that 
inframammary fold, the lateral mammary fold. It's kind of a hump that you go over and it just sits down beautifully into the pocket. And so you don't have to do a whole lot of reconstruction of that lateral mammary fold, as opposed to when you're doing an implant, you've got to do all kinds of stuff to raise it and put it underneath and, you know, tack it down. And so you're absolutely right, Dr. Benosa. It's, it's a really neat technique that's slightly different than using an implant because the tunnel can be lower and smaller with the caveat that occasionally you may need surgery lube to, to really push it into the breast. So. <laughs> so obviously, you know, the blood supply to the muscle, the latissimus in general is, is critical for the fat to take. Now in breast reconstruction, as has been described previously in the literature, sometimes your thoracodorsal system will be out, but you can still use the latissimus from the retrograde blood supply. Now, would you consider still doing the lift in those cases? I have, you know, again, most of these patients that come have already had a failed free flap because of a high a hypercoagulable state or something that has happened. And so, uh, you know, you, those are the situations where we would do duplex and imaging and so forth. Uh, but if the serratus branch is, is open, uh, it hypertrophies. And it's, it's pretty remarkable that the entire latissimus flap can be raised and elevated and transposed and interpolated based on that serratus branch. So yeah, I have done that. That's awesome. And given that fact that, you know, in those cases, serratus branch may open up. And to your point previously, Dr. Greenspun, the vessel calibers for a lumbar artery are about one, one and a half millimeters. Would you ever consider just primarily since you're in lateral decubitus position already hooking up the lumbar artery perforator flap to the serratus branch? So you don't essentially use the, the blood supply to latissimus. So you can have that as a fallback option, but still use the serratus branch as your recipient vessels. So it's a neat idea. I'll admit to having not considered it before, but here's a couple of thoughts about it. If you were to do that, you would have to harvest the contralateral flap. Because if you think about the orientation of the pedicle, the pedicle on the lumbar flap is about three or four centimeters in length. So if you look at these vessels on any like CT angiogram or MR angiogram, it's easy to sort of think, oh, this is a big, long vessel. You look at this vessel going into the subcutaneous fat, and then you watch it go through the erector spinae and the quadratus lumborum, but, and all the way back toward the aorta. But the problem is that, and you see the veins going toward the cava, but the problem is that for the safety of the patient, you really have to stop the dissection essentially when you get to the transverse process, the tip of the transverse process. So the actual pedicle length is only going to be three or four centimeters long once it's not on stretch. And so on the undersurface of this flap, that's got this very good sort of, you know, lobular fat, you have this short stump of a pedicle. And so when you harvest ipsilateral, that stump would be, and you rotate the flap so that you, I, I didn't describe this earlier, but we bevel and take some of the gluteal fat along with the lumbar flap. That's how you get that sort of in profile view, the idea of a, of an, of a teardrop shaped anatomic implant. That has to be rotated so that the fatty portion without the skin island forms the upper pole of the breast. If you use the ipsilateral flap, that rotation and orientation puts the vascular pedicle in alignment with the internal mammaries. If you do this and you want to have the vascular pedicle, and even with a graft, you're not really going to reach all the way over and cross, you know, you think about the base width of somebody's chest, you know, 16, 17. 
17 centimeters, you know, you're not going to comfortably cross that even with a graft of seven or eight centimeters. So you'd have to harvest the contralateral flap to be able to have the orientation to connect it to that branch. And, and I don't know what the pressure head would be and what the impact of that would be. Certainly from a technical standpoint, it, it would be probably a, a bit tricky to also do the anastomosis in situ in the chest without a lot of length to have this short stumpy pedicle underneath. So I wouldn't be enthusiastic to try it though in concept, it's a, it's a nice idea. I mean, excellent points. And I think this has been an excellent discussion uh, from two master surgeons about two different techniques, really, as given us different secondary options for autologous uh, breast reconstruction when the deep flap isn't available. So I really want to thank Dr. Song and Greenspun for coming on today's ASPS EdNet Hot Seat Show to talk about secondary options when the deep flap isn't available. I look forward to seeing more work from both of you on this topic. Uh, and now a few words from our host to close out the episode. Thank you, Dr. Benosa and Drs. David Song and David Greenspun. And a special thanks to you, our listeners. While our group today focused much of their practice on breast reconstruction, this is truly an important topic given how prevalent breast cancer is and how many plastic surgeons offer breast reconstruction as part of their practice. Thanks again for joining us on Plastic Surgery Hot Seat. Be on the lookout for our next episode. 